Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for episode 208. We are talking wild fed with Daniel Vitalis as our guest. Today, we're going to be talking about the world of hunter, gathering, foraging, and the importance of becoming reintegrated with nature. It's going to be an awesome conversation, and this gentleman has so many fun facts to share from things like Johnny Appleseed and why our carrots are orange in the first place, and uh, he eats such a plethora of varietals of plants and animals, like his you know, freezer has bear in it and so much more. I think y'all are really going to enjoy today's conversation and also learn how you can look at food a little bit differently and start to explore the varietals in the plant and animal kingdom. Yes, he is such a cool guy with a lot of knowledge and a lot of stories to tell. And he's also just very down to earth, literally, (laughs) and fun to talk to. So I think y'all will really enjoy the conversation. Before we dive in, let's just have a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Fond Bone Broth. Yes. So Fond is truly wellness well made. Y'all know that Becky and I are all about bone broth, like a facelift for your gut, providing us collagen, gelatin, and amino acids that aid in reducing food sensitivity, as well as aiding in body fat burn and successful outcomes with fasting, hair, skin, and nails, and so much more. And bone broth is something that you can sip on daily to support your gut integrity and all of those other benefits. The problem is when we're in hot spaces like Austin, Texas, sometimes we don't feel like drinking hot, heavy meat juice, but Fond really brightens up bone broths and makes healthy, tasty elixirs that create synergistic flavor profiles from their turmeric cracked black pepper to their youth tonic, which has shallots and shiitake mushrooms and their serrano beets and hot pepper blend. They provide you bone broth that is nourishing and delightful and has converted many of my anti-bone broth clients into sipping on the good stuff on the daily. So go on over to fondbonebroth.com and use the code AllieMillerRD at checkout. That's F-O-N-D-B-O-N-E-B-R-O-T-H dot com. Use the code AllieMillerRD to save and check out all of their anti-inflammatory, gut-supporting, delightful flavor profiles that will help you sipping your way to wellness. Yes, such good stuff. All right, let's go ahead and read Daniel's bio and then we'll bring him on the podcast. Daniel Vitalis is the host of Wild Fed. For 10 years, he lectured around North America and abroad, offering workshops that helped others lead healthier, more nature-integrated lives. 
a successful entrepreneur. He founded the nutrition company SirThrival.com in 2008. Most recently, he hosted the popular podcast Rewild Yourself. He's a registered main guide, writer, public speaker, interviewer, and lifestyle pioneer who's especially interested in helping people reconnect with wildness both inside and outside of themselves. After learning to hunt, fish, and forage as an adult, Daniel created Wild Fed to inspire others to start a wild food journey of their own. Headquartered in the Lakes region of Maine, he lives with his beautiful wife, Avani, and their plot hound, Ellie. Connect with him at wildfed.com as well as on Instagram and Facebook. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast, Daniel. I would love for you to just start off sharing your story with our audience on how you really decided to lead a nature-integrated and wild-fed life and kind of where this whole passion started. Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me on and uh, hello to your audience here. Um, Yeah, my background, I've been working for about 12 years in the natural health space and when I got, you know, I got started many years before that uh, in my own personal journey. And I just from very early on was really curious, like um, kind of the question started with what's natural food for the human animal? Because I was always really interested in the idea that humans are an animal, but we seem to be this animal who's forgotten what we're supposed to eat. <laughs> you know, literally actually what we're supposed to eat. So, you know, month after month, since I've been paying attention, I've watched fad diets roll out just like a Rolodex that just constantly churns out new fad diets. And it started to occur to me that all these fad diets were based on the same foods from the supermarket, just rearranged into different packages. And we would call that a new diet. And I'd always be like, but what do we eat naturally? That was always really interesting to me. Um, it's so obvious to me now the answer to that question, but it took me like a decade to really sort it out. So I started off, like I said, you know, uh, in the natural health space, I was working amongst and alongside a lot of vegan and raw food, uh, teachers, some of the real big names. And I was blessed to share the stage with a lot of those folks. But from, from the very beginning, uh, I had been a vegan earlier in my life, but from the beginning of when I started teaching, I was no longer vegan and I was no longer raw. And that culture still allowed me to continue speaking at their conferences for some reason. And, uh, and I was sort of on a journey of personal discovery, but also kind of um, asking these questions to the audiences too. And over the years, that's led me to where I'm at today, which is uh, I have this deep interest in wild food. So I hunt, I fish, I forage, I trap for foods from the natural environment. And what I'd, you know, just to sort of wrap a bow on that, um, what I came to understand was that the human animal is an incredibly diverse species, Homo sapiens. Uh, We've been around about 300,000 years and we are cosmopolitan in our distribution. In other words, we live all over the surface of the earth. So the the answer to the question is a little complex because we can't really say here's our natural diet because we we have human beings living as hunter-gatherers in the Arctic, and we have them living as hunter-gatherers at the equator. So obviously, our um, dietary preferences range dramatically based on you know geolocation and stuff. So, um, but what I did come to understand is that human beings have always been omnivores from very very early on. Um, that we've hunted and foraged, so we are hunters and gatherers, which I like. It's kind of a polarity, kind of a a set of opposites. 
And uh, we've done this uh, whether we lived in the Arctic or whether we lived in the tropics. Um, and we, about 10,000 years ago, diverged really dramatically from our biologically normal life way. And we started this agricultural experiment we call the Neolithic Revolution. We started farming. Um, and there are those anthropologists who look uh, at the fossil record and it's pretty clear that our health really dropped off dramatically when we started doing this. We're still in the experiment. And I think it's interesting to note that not the entire human population has yet adopted the farming lifestyle. We still have about 100 uncontacted tribes in the world who are hunting and gathering. So we call it the Neolithic Revolution. It started in Mesopotamia. It's not over yet. Some of the world's population still hunts and gathers. And many of us today are realizing that if we want to figure out like a really biologically normal diet and how to be really uh, how to optimize our nutrition, that we should at least look to our ancestors and try to replicate. You know, it doesn't mean yeah. we all have to go out and hunt and gather, but it, it would be smart for us to bring some of those principles into our, our modern diet. So I, I do both the practice today of actually hunting and gathering, and then I, I teach, you know, a lot of people about how to uh, sort of replicate that at home. That's so interesting. And, and it's interesting because I was a certified raw vegan chef uh, at one period of time out in Seattle when I was also doing the, the most, I guess, integration with nature, a lot of hiking out in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of, uh, you know, I was actually working at an or a biodynamic farm. And that's when I started to learn about the necessity of animal integrated with plant life and this symbiotic relationship. And my own health history went into more of a Weston A. Price ancestral connection to eating. And so I think that this resonates to a lot of our listeners that have that connection of the necessity of man and animal and plant and this, mm -hmm. this symbiosis and, and even fungi, right? All these different kingdoms that integrate. When I first heard you talk, Daniel, it was um, late spring and I was starting to see a lot of cognitive dissonance in policy applied in the constructs of pandemic. You know, um, really little understanding on how the human body works. What does the innate and acquired immune system do? You know, on, on a global and environmental scale, we were seeing a lot of sterility, um, you know, the bleaching of the beaches um, in, was that in Spain? Spain. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I get really shook up because I feel that the, the tech and modern movement is to go forward and outsmart nature and that we often have to go back. I'd, I'd love for you to kind of unpack a little bit. This is a deep dive, I know, but the, the, I call it the symbiosis of everything. Like, how do you see the, the way that things work together and where are the concerns for breaking this delicate balance in, in industrialized or modernized man? It is a deep dive. This is stuff I love talking about. And <laughs> just, just I, I, I'll go as opening. deep as you want to go. Um, <laughs> I think fundamentally what, what we have are two general philosophies that are at odds with one another. There's the philosophy that informed the variegated life ways of indigenous hunter-gatherers, traditional peoples, peoples up until relatively recently even in a lot of the world. And then there's the philosophy that underpins the ideas behind the Neolithic revolution, farming and the development of complex civilizations. And I would say that the complex civilization, I think really what, what fundamentally underlies it often is this idea of transhumanism. So this idea that the Homo sapien can become more of an angel and less of an ape through technology and its advancements. But we have these... Um, 
we have these sort of metaphors that come to us through time, uh, you know, as far back as let's say the biblical idea of the Tower of Babel, where, you know, human beings are trying to become God through the construct, the, through technology and construction, or uh, maybe in um, Fantasia, right, where Mickey gets a hold of Merlin's hat. Yeah. And he starts to mess with the magic. And the, the more he changes and alters what's going on around him, the more problems he creates. And every time he tries to solve one using the magic or let's say a metaphor for technology, a new problem is developed that's worse than the first problem. And it gets so out of control for him. If you remember the scene where the mops and the, the buckets, buckets are and, all yeah. running around. Totally. Yeah, and he, he can't get it under control because he doesn't yet have the wisdom to wield the power that he has. So I think what we're looking at right now is this, this, we're at this period of time where people believe through technology, they can achieve uh, some kind of like, I don't, I don't mean this in a religious or spiritual sense, but this like God-like status right. above nature. Ego and, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's a lot of ego. Uh, the problem is we have this belief in linear time right now where it's like this all, always this forward, upward progression. So there's this sense that a lot of people have that we're just going to keep stacking technology on technology on technology until we're in like a Star Trek type reality. But if you look back through history, uh, especially because of the powerful confounding forces of nature, it looks like civilizations are more cyclical and they rise and fall. And so we see that since the beginning of farming, we don't see this with indigenous cultures. It's really interesting. They just last. So you look at like the Aboriginal people of Australia and it's like, oh yeah, they've been there probably 55 to 65,000 years out of Africa there in Australia and, and living essentially their same life way that entire time. In that time, you know, uh, Mesopotamia rose and fell, Babylon rose and fell, Egypt rose and fell, Greece Roman fe rose and fell, Rome rose and fell, the Roman Empire rose and fell, and now we've watched the rise of the modern Western civilization and probably we're seeing signs of its decay right now. And so there's this, every time we step out of nature, it looks to me like what happens is we have a flush of something that looks really great, it hits a crescendo and then it kind of crumbles. So as we look around, what we're seeing is the model we're using right now to man, and you know, back to your point about COVID and the way that some of it was approached, you know, the pandemic and, and future pandemics probably too, right? Um, is that we are, are approaching it with the same model we use for factory farming animals. So what we have going on right now is a civilization that treats the inhabitants like factory farmed animals. Yeah. Stacked and packed in apartments, stacked and packed in cities, very similar to our CAFO farms. We get lowest common denominator medicine, uh, if you can call it medicine. <laughs> we, uh, we eat nutritionally bankrupt food, uh, too many calories, not enough nutrients. I'm sure that's something you talk about a lot. Um, we, uh, just like we do with our chickens, just like we do with aquaculture, just like we do with the CAFO farm, it's hormone injections, it's antibiotics constantly because there's too many of us packed too close. Uh, so what we're doing is factory farming ourselves. The system's unsustainable. I don't think there's anybody arguing the sustainability of what we're doing right now. It seems a pretty universally agreed upon thing that this is unsustainable, but very often people don't seem to be able to put this next piece together. If it's unsustainable, it will end. Yeah. I mean, it sounds yeah. so simple, but it's like people don't get it. Hey, your lifestyle is going to end and it might end in your lifetime or you might make it through and maybe it doesn't end in your lifetime, but it's going to end and it might be winding down to a degree now. And that might be why so many of us like yourselves have been called to this new lifestyle, which is really sort of an ancient lifestyle. We're saying, hey, I want to live in tune with the rhythms rather than fight the rhythms. I want to um, live with the seasons instead of fight the seasons. What I mean by that is like, you go into anybody's house and it's room temperature, 365 days a year. It's a flat line. Like when you see a flat line right. on a heart rate monitor, it's a dead person. 
But when yeah. you look at like temperature, it's not supposed, it should be like no a hormesis. heartbeat. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no yeah. hormesis. Yeah. So we want to see hot days and cool nights and, and our body should be adjusting to that. But what we've done is flatlined it. We want to have times of nutritional abundance and times of nutritional scarcity. That's why a lot of modern people who uh, have lived in tune have uh, had feasts and, and have had fasting because it's a way to create that sine wave rhythm of lots and little. Uh, and all of our lifestyle should be like that. But uh, what we do in our culture is try to replicate the same conditions 24-7. And it's, it's actually like choking the life out of us. So um, that's a long-winded answer. But I think what's going on is we've been, we've been battling nature for quite a while. And it's an unwinnable fight. Now, we've made some incredible progress. I mean, it's pretty amazing what we've accomplished. But I think what we're seeing around us is that the underpinnings of it are starting to come unglued a little bit. Totally. And it's so funny because I think about what, two years ago, Becky, we did an episode on biohacking and we kept coming back and saying, but you're better if you just go back to the source, right? Like yeah. you can buy a grounding pad, you can buy blue blockers, but how about you get outside for the first hour of your day and you get that daylight in your pineal gland? How about yeah. you, you know, there's, there's all of the, how about you put your feet in the ocean? Yeah. <laughs> how about, and, and so I think that that calls to a lot of us. Uh, let's kind of go into the world of food and could I comment on, on the biohacking yeah. thing real quick? Yeah. I just think it's important because, uh, you know, I was part of that culture for a while. I did a podcast for a few years called Rewild Yourself, which started off kind of biohacking and ended with me doing what I'm doing now, which is hunting mm. and gathering for exactly the reason you said. And what I started to see was if you really tried to implement all of these biohacking technologies at home, you eventually stack so many goofy things on top of each other that it's just, <laughs> insane. before you know it, you're, I mean, it's so ridiculous, right? You're wearing the orange glasses, you're standing on the bike biomat while you're in the sauna trying to like, you know, dry skin brush yourself while you listen to audiobooks. It gets to where you're, you go insane. Mm -hmm. And if you look at a lot of the big name, but it's okay. If you look at the big names in the raw vegan world, they've all become, uh, they all become overweight, uh, sick people later on who look like they've prematurely aged. It's ironic. You become the opposite of what you talk about very often. If you look at what happens in the biohacking world, I'll just say it like this. You can't hack your way to wholeness. Mm. <laughs> It's really simple. So where wholeness exists is back out in nature. So if we start to back ourselves out of that stuff a little bit and instead immerse ourselves in the, the natural world, you brought up miner's lettuce just before we started talking. And um, if you were to go out right now and harvest miner's lettuce, you would be in fresh air. So you got the air piece down. So there goes the air purifier and the ionizer and the plants in the house and all those things that you're doing to recreate that and you're biohacking. You're out in the sun. So that kind of covers your vitamin D and your full spectrum lights and your tanning bed and all that stuff, right? You're interacting with another species, which is an entity from another kingdom. So you're communing with um, a non-human person, the miners led a species. That's a living thing that's much older been around a lot longer than human beings. You are hands in the soil. So you're getting those microbes that you need to really build your immune system and, and flora, you know, get the flora in your gut. I could go on and on and on. All the Love things it. come together. And so when we try to do this at Whole Foods and with our blue blocker glasses, we're getting a, a very weak representation <laughs> of what we could be getting outside. And then there's the movement, right? You're, you're, you're applying gradient of, of squatting and you're, you're doing kind of more ancestral movement versus CrossFit yeah. or exercise, very rigid. It's a, it's a different yeah. um, fluidity. Uh, I think Becky and I are on that train of fluidity. And I think that that's what nature really provides. 
I a hundred percent agree and more. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm a big, I know the folks over at MoveNet. I really love what those guys do and um, it's great stuff. But when I, you know, it's like that stuff only should be preparing me for outside, but I don't want that to become the surrogate outside. Now, I do think, I want to just say in fairness, I think all of this stuff, whether it's veganism or it's biohacking, any of that, that stuff is often very essential transitional steps for people. So I don't want to uh, diminish it. I just find it funny when folks hang out there for 20 years and never actually make it to the next step. Totally. And they can be ways to kind of mitigate some of the lifestyle stuff that we can't control, but Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. So there is our whole life. (laughs) That's when it becomes a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. We heard you say we've taken the medicine out of food and that's a big part of our work is, is talking about food as medicine and how to bring that back in. But what does that mean to you? Right. So if we went into the supermarket and we went to the produce section, we might see, if we went to a nice grocery store, right, we might see what looks like 150 different plants available in that supermarket um, produce section. But if we start to pick it apart with the eyes of a botanist, we start to find out really quickly there's a lot less there than we thought there was from the perspective of diversity. So what I mean is if we were to look at, I'm going I'm to describe a bunch of plants and then I'll kind of go deeper here. So let's say we looked at the broccoli and we looked at the cauliflower and we looked at all the different varieties of cabbage. And then we looked at the kales and there'd be, you know, four different types of kale. Uh, we look at the Brussels sprouts. We look at the the kohlrabi, we look at the broccolini and the broccoli rob, um, we look at uh, the, the collard greens, we might think, wow, that's great. There's nine different vegetables. I'll eat one a night and I'll always have different variety. And what people don't realize is that those are all the same plant. And they're the same plant in the way that a, a dachshund and a greyhound and a German shepherd are all dogs. Now, those are different races of dogs. So similar to a person might be black or white or you know, they might be Asian or Native American, but they're all human. We're all the same species, Homo sapiens. All of the dog varieties, there's about 500 species or races, uh, sorry, not species, 500 races or what we tend to call breeds of dogs, but they're all Canis lupus familiaris, the same animal. When you look at all those plants I just mentioned, all those vegetables, they all come from Brassica oleracea, the wild plant from Europe. Europe. Uh, but they've, that plant's been bred into all these different representations where the leaves might be mutated in such a way through breeding to appear like Brussels sprouts or bigger like cabbage. The flower can be turned into broccoli or into um, cauliflower. Uh, maybe we grow a big storage organ at the base of the plant and, and we call that kohlrabi, but that's all the same plant. Now, one of the things about that plant, all plants have secondary metabolites. These are the plant toxins that they produce um, to either protect themselves from insects and other herbivores, or they might be just important parts of their metabolism. Now, those things are toxic and they can be medicinal. I'll get into that in a second. In the case of Brassica oleracea, it makes a goitrogen, something that actually inhibits iodine uptake to the thyroid. Now, um, that's not a big deal because we normally would cycle plants a lot, but you can see how somebody might go to the grocery store and think they're eating a variety of things and actually be eating only that one plant over and over and over and over again. So similarly, if we were to try to disassemble the rest of the market, we might see, wait a second, half of these plants over here are all alliums, the garlic onion family. And uh, wait a second, there's like 16 types of lettuces, but they're all lettuce. 
And real quickly, we realized there's very little variety. Why? Because human beings have taken out of the, the massive flora of the wild world, we have cultivated just a handful of plants that we farm. Now, when we do that, like if we were to go outside and I was to show you guys a wild lettuce, I don't know if you're familiar with the plant, but if we were to go find a wild lettuce and we were tasting it, we would, we would immediately notice that it was extremely bitter and that that bitterness seemed to come from the, the heavy white latex that's in it. Now, in the past, it was understood that that white latex that was in the wild lettuces was a mild sedative and even has been used through time as an opiate substitute. Uh, it was used to help children sleep at night. It was used to, uh, to anesthetize uh, toothaches for kids who were teething, things like that. Um, this goes all the way back to Egypt. This plant's been used in this way. Now, we have bread lettuces. If you got a red leaf lettuce, an oak leaf lettuce, a, a romaine lettuce, and you cut that very base of it off, you would notice it has a little bit of remnant white latex in there, but it's mostly gone from the leaves themselves. We've bred the medicine part out. Wow. Yeah. Now, what that, that yields is plants that aren't very bitter, which makes them very pleasant to eat. But because they're, they're because remember, what we call a medicine is also a poison. This is really obvious because if we go to the pharmacy, almost any drug that's there that, that affects us in a medicinal way at a low level, in a large level, will be poisonous to us. Well, that's true of herbal medicines too, which is where we source most of our, um, our pharmaceutical medicines anyway, large portion of them. But... Um, when you take the medicine part out of a plant through breeding, it's kind of like when we bred our pet dogs, we bred, because dogs are all wolves, they're all gray wolves. Every dog is a gray wolf. What we've bred out is the snarly tooth eat you part. Similarly, right, to make the friendly dog. Well, similarly, we've bred the poison part out or the medicinal part out of our lettuces, for example, and that's yielded a very tame and domesticated lettuce. The problem is, because it has none of that bitter poison, it doesn't just taste mild to you. It tastes mild to every insect and mammal around. Mm -hmm. So now what you have to do is fence it. You have to um, use insecticides or herbicides, whether natural or unnatural. You suddenly have to protect this thing the way you have to protect your puppy if you let it out into the wild because it has no defenses left. So what we're left with is plants that lack, and this is, and I use lettuce as an example, but it's true pretty much across the board of the foods that are in our supermarket, is that they lack medicine. They also lack nutrition, but they tend to be something we can eat more of because they have less of those things in them. So they're more palatable, but we also then end up usually poisoning them at some level in order to protect them from the things that wouldn't be able to eat them if they were still in their wild state. So we've got this very complicated game going on. And what it ends up with is we end up with a deficiency of medicine. And then what you see is everybody then needing to get medicine. So they, input, either yeah. to, they either have to go to herbalism or to pharmacy to get the medicines that were originally in their plants. So in herbalism, we're getting wild plants that still have their medicine, or we go to pharmacy where they produce medicines that usually were based out of something that came from wild plants in the first place. That's so wild. And it comes back to, again, that like amending or input, imp more input. Uh, where is the gradient here? So, you know, I think you mentioned deer tongue or, you know, there's heirloom varietals of lettuces that you could get from your farmer's market. Um, there's hydroponic, which has, in, in my perspective, more of a, maybe, I don't know your take on it, but maybe more of a synthetic environment. Spaceship. Um, it's for the spaceship. 
And then, right. I, I think, right. I know. I know. I'm always like, when I see them, I'm like, I don't know though. You're really manipulating that. There's no natural input at all to how you're growing this. But anyway, um, so yeah, what's the gradient kind of for consumers? Um, you know, we always say, try to establish a relationship with your farmer's market and growers. And we, we will talk foraging in a, in a moment, but as far as this dynamic of, of your grocery store and your options for most people is an heirloom varietal have more of that wild element to it because it hasn't been as hybridized or kind of what's the good, better, best? Awesome question. Remember, hybridized is actually, we tend to use that a little bit incorrectly because hybridized means to take two species that aren't the same species and breed them. Okay. And when you do, you end up with a sterile varietal. And so if you take a, a, what is it, a horse and a donkey and you breed them, you get a mule and the mule can't breed. And so similarly, if you cross species, that's how we get seedless fruits. So if you've ever wondered, like, obviously they don't have a seed removing machine for watermelons, but if you cross species, you can produce a sterile cultivar. Um, And so then what you end up with is, is plants like bananas, which should be filled with seeds, but only have little black seed remnants, sterile seed remnants. Um, and you end up with a plant that becomes very weak. In fact, we'll probably in our lifetimes lose the yellow Cavendish banana we all grew up with to disease because um, it's so hybridized. But um, but you, I think what you're referring to is just more classical breeding. Um, I would call it almost down breeding. Okay, so um, I, uh, will an heirloom variety be better, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I look at it like this. An heirloom means it's been passed on through families, right? So what that means is that, you know, through the breeding process, your family back in the days of agriculture, when people practiced agriculture more generally, you developed a variety that, that fit your landscape. It was actually like geo, it was a geo tag of your place, right? It was a tomato that had been adapted to your soil and your environment, your growing conditions, your light conditions, etc. Um, very often those are better, but I don't want to say across the board. Instead, I'll say this, you're looking for flavor and you're looking for color. So, uh, and keep in mind, you know, I go to the farmer's market and there's, there's the farmer that I like to buy from. And then there's the farmer next door and the farmer next door has to the eye, the more superior produce. Everything is three times that these are all organic farmers, three times the size, so much more shine. So it just looks, it's, it's food porn over there. And I've talked to my farmer and been like, why is their stuff so huge? And she's like, nitrogen, man, and water. It's just all pumped up. It's bloated. It's, it's a bodybuilder on steroids. Um, it doesn't taste as good because it's watered down, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I'm not saying you want to go visually on what's the biggest, shiniest, most perfect, even in the organic world. But instead, you want the stuff that has the densest color. You want the stu- stuff that has the most bitter and pungent flavor. Um, you want the stuff often that's smaller, and I'll explain why here in a second. So first of all, on color, of course, uh, I'm sure your listeners understand that color pigments are antioxidants. And when we're looking at color, what we're seeing is protection from the sun, uh, internal sunscreen, as well as something to quell the free radical cascades that are happening in our body. You know, keep in mind, not only are we eating 
you know, here's the thing I try to remind, you know, in the raw food world, I'm sure you saw this, like people thinking they're going to become immortal. And I would try to remind people sometimes like, like, Hey dude, no I'm matter a how good, now. I'm a bro. I've met all those breatharians, by the way. That's one of the biggest, I actually met them personally. Like that's one of the biggest scams going, what a joke. You know, I got some stories for you that are hilarious, but that's another time. Yes. Uh, yeah. But uh, they eat in secret. Uh, but uh, what was I saying? Um, the color pigments are antioxidants. Oh, I wanted to say that real quick. Um, that no matter how good you eat, keep in mind that that you this is think about the lifespan of an indigenous person living in uh, North America in the year thirteen hundred. We're talking about very advanced societies with outstanding food crops and uh, hunted and gathered produce, no pollution, like no pollution. And they weren't immortal, right? So the idea we're going to eat our way at Whole Foods into immortality is hilarious because (laughs) we're all the products of Chernobyl and Fukushima and the 2000 nuclear weapons that from the nuclear testing war that we had, you know, in the turn of the, around the turn of the century or whatever. So we, we, we're living in a really toxic environment, PCBs, you know, we're, we're going to do the best we can with what we have. Uh, but because of all that pollution, we need more antioxidants than our ancestors needed. You know what I mean? We're more, we right. need that stuff more and we're getting less. Right. Okay. So color pigments are that. Now think about it like this. If you were to look at a wild blueberry and you were to look at a cultivated blueberry, the cultivated blueberry is going to be like the size of a chickpea. And the wild blueberries, I don't know, what, what would we call that? It's a third of the size. <laughs> what is it? What did you say? Teeny. Yeah, it's teeny. <laughs> but the thing is, is that the, um, what that results in is that the internal sweet pulpy mass to skin ratio is greater in the small one than in the big one. So what ends up happening is for every blueberry I eat that's wild, I get more surface area and less internals. So I get less of the sugary interior and I get more of the skin. Whereas if you think about a cultivated blueberry, now it's less skin to the internal mass ratio. So I'm actually getting less antioxidants per cup than I would get from the wild blueberry just on skin size alone. Does that make sense? It's kind of like uh, if you think about like mammals that live near the Arctic have to be huge because they want to have more internal body mass than skin so that they can hold heat. And as mammals, you know, get down toward the equator, it's the opposite. Mammals tend to get smaller uh, because they need to doff heat. So it's sort of like that. So you have more internal mass that doesn't have all those antioxidants and actually less skin. So that's one of the things we want to find the smaller produce with the brighter colors and the more concentrated flavor. Um, We want to get more bitter. So we want lettuces that actually have some bitterness to them. We don't want those, see-through panes of glass lettuces like iceberg lettuce where I can peel a leaf off and look through it. It doesn't even have chlorophyll, right? So <laughs> we want rich color. Also, think about with, a, with an um, iceberg lettuce, you have uh, mutated it so that the leaves have all bound themselves into a tight sphere. That means only the external leaves are doing any photosynthesis when it's outside in the sun. Whereas if I have a leafy lettuce, all the leaves are laid open like a florette, and all the leaves photosynthesize. So I get much more chlorophyll with a leafy lettuce than I do from a a more head-like lettuce. Also, the more the bitter flavors are there, the more medicinal compounds I'm getting. Uh, Similar with pungency, um, similar with any, you know, when you think about 
all of the spices, which are very close to wild plants and what we, you know, all of our, our herbs tend to be, you know, that rosemary, thyme, oregano, sage, marjoram, all those tend to be much closer to wild plants as well, nearly wild plants. And they are, they have those pungent and, and strong flavors, those spicy flavors. All of those function like medicines in our body. So we want lots of that stuff and we want to get away from the stuff that has um, been bulked up, uh, mutated, you know, sort of full of water and, and lacking in nutrition. Um, I'm less concerned about the variety. So I'm, I'm less of like, hey, do you know the name of this heirloom? That matters less to me than it, that it has those qualities I was just talking about. And then beyond the seed, the let's talk a little bit about the growing conditions, I guess, and, and how that would impact or if you feel that that has a huge influence. So, you know, like you said, so you don't care if it's a cosmic carrot or, you know, an XYZ, <laughs> Ruby, whatever they're calling them these days, which, you know, I think a decade ago used to be really abnormal and kind of mm-hmm. like just those couple farmers market vendors. And now they're everywhere and grown in California and finding us in Austin, Texas. Um, so what's the difference of maybe taking something that has that bright color and, uh, maybe isn't grown just based on that that bulking up in weight and is smaller and dense. What role does the soil play, and um, what's kind of the good, better, best there? And how does nature provide differently, I guess, than even the most biodynamic compared to organic compared to conventional? Okay, great question. Um, yeah, on carrots, real quick, just a little anecdote. The original carrot, well, the wild carrot's called Queen Anne's lace. Um, the yes. wild carrot grows here, and uh, it smells just like a carrot. But, uh, you know, lacks all of that uh, really crunchy, chewy, carbohydrate-rich body that you have in a domestic carrot. Now, when carrots were first domesticated, they weren't orange. They were purple forever. So just know that when you see multicolored carrots in your supermarket, that's the, that's the old stuff. Real deal. New stuff is, is the orange thing. And actually, the orange cultivars were, were done to um, honor the orange coat of arms of a royal family from Europe at one point. And that's how we ended up with orange carrots. I mean, some of this stuff is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> you look back at what it, what's gone on. Uh, back to it. What's the importance of the soil? I mean, man, you could take the most talented uh, and intelligent child and put them in the very worst home. And I think their outcome is going to really suffer. Yeah. You know, um, people always go back and forth. Is it nurture or is it nature? It's like, well, it's obviously both, (laughs) right? Uh, But you could take a plant that has great genetics and put it in very poor soil and you're going to end up with a nutritionally bankrupt food. So I think the soil matters tremendously. Um, I'm not a huge fan of hydroponics at all. Um, That said, let me just be clear here. Um, I used to think like it would be better to just not eat than to eat something that was poorly grown. I kind of feel differently about that now. I think it's more important that we eat. So similarly, like I used to talk a lot about water and I really love spring water and water from wells. But if I'm in the airport, like I'll drink plastic bottled water because I got to have water, right? That's more important than me getting all anal retentive about what the water is. Similarly, I think it's important that we eat. So if what we have access to is hydroponic vegetables, please don't think like, well, geez, I shouldn't eat them because he said that it's better if I eat. just eat and do your best. Uh, however, as you develop discernment and or access, I think soil grown is obviously better for a whole host of reasons. Um, particularly when we start to get into micronutrients, you know, that's where it starts to become a bigger deal. And then also keeping in mind, you know, NASA did some really cool studies. They were looking at, um, 
how do we clean the air uh, in the space stations and shuttles? Because as you can imagine, you know, when you walk into like a newly built, um, maybe a department store and you just get, you walk in, you just get hit with a wall of VOCs. It's like the smell of formaldehyde because everything <laughs> is new, shiny plastic and carpet and linoleum and all that stuff's outgassing. Well, think about what a space shuttle must be like because okay. you got this sealed up chamber full of all this brand new shiny plastic. So they were like, we got to clean the air in here because there's a lot of VOCs. So they started doing experiments with plants. Like what happens if we put house plants and they started to realize that, Hey, this really cleans up the air. But eventually what they realized, wow, it's, it appears that it's not the house plants. It's actually the soil interface. So they found that if they allowed the soil in the pot to get covered up with leaves and debris, that they had less of this absorption of the VOCs, that it was actually the soil and the microbes in the soil. Because mm. keep in mind, a, a handful of soil contains more microbes than all the humans who are alive now, plus all the ones that have lived ever. <laughs> it's a very rich ecosystem. Not to mention that as soils created, genetic material from countless organisms is concentrated in the humic and fulvic acids. I mean, we don't even be, we can't, we're not even at the beginning of that science. We are starting to learn about nutrigenomics, which is the looking at how the genetics of the things that we eat affect us, but we are in the infancy of this. Um, so anyway, as far as what role soil and quality soil plays, I want to say we barely know. We barely know, but I think intuitively it's obvious that it makes a huge difference. Um, especially because if I go to the farmer's market and I get um, vegetables there, they're going to have soil remnant on them. And just picking them up, I'm going to be interacting with those species. And hopefully some of those species can actually take root in my gut, right? So that's kind of the goal and on my skin. Uh, whereas if I get something that's hydroponic, it's essentially like sterilized. No dirt. It's been, yeah. it's yep. been grown. It's kind of like, uh, hey, do you want to raise your kids in isolation? We can grow them in a tank. Like, why have them in your body? Like, why not just raise them in, a, in some kind of embryonic fluid tank? Well, because you just know, hey, I'm, I'm biological. I want my kid to be raised biologically if I can. Well, it's kind of like that with produce, right? It's like, do I want to grow it in a hydroponic tank inside under artificial lights? Like, mm, not really. I'm not saying that it won't make, you know, a great piece of lettuce on your burger or something, but um, ultimately that's probably nutritionally not the direction we want to go. Also, I do want to bring attention to a book that I think really helps with some of these concepts. Um, the book was written by, I want to say Joe Johnson, J-O, I think it's a woman, Joe Johnson. And the book is Eating on the Wild Side. And what Joe does is, is looks at plants that we eat today and then traces their lineage back to sort of their origin story as a wild species. And then looks at which varieties have more nutrition and less. Uh, like one of the things Joe pointed out was that... Um, you know, we have this idea of an apple a day keeps the doctor away, which by the way, was just, was a marketing campaign that came out of the prohibition because, you know, apples, the apple industry was centered around cider. And when there was an amendment to the constitution to ban the consumption of alcohol, the apple industry suffered. So they had to rebrand themselves as a food. And in order to do that, they had to make massively, well, they had to make considerably sugar, more sugary apples because the apples that you use for cider, the best ones are tart, bitter, astringent and sour that makes the best hard cider but for eating apples of course we want them to be sweet so they rebranded themselves and that was just a marketing campaign there was no doctors involved in that right <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> well what they found out was if you take an apple like um and by the way an apple like we'll just use the red delicious as an example if you've ever eaten a red delicious apple what you've eaten is a clone 
In fact, if you go to the supermarket and you buy an apple, or if you go to most farmer's markets and you buy an apple, you're just buying a clone. Um, every Red Delicious apple consumed since the first Red Delicious was discovered have all been genetic clones. And that's true of every other variety, Cortland's, Macintosh's, like whatever it is, they're all the same apple. Because what happens is every apple, let's say an apple, you cut it open, um, you know, along its equatorial line and, and you expose that it's got five seeds. All five apple seeds will produce a radically different apple. They will not be consistent. So the seed of a Red Delicious won't grow a Red Delicious. It'll grow what we call a pippin. And what a pippin is, is an apple that's grown from seed. This is what Johnny Appleseed was obsessed with. He believed in wild seed grown apples and he was selling apple pippins to people who were headed westward because in the westward expansion, they could be given free land by the federal government if they planted a certain amount of fruit trees. So he was selling to those folks, but he had this religious belief basically that we shouldn't clone apples. So what goes on with this is, let me give you an example. Let's say you plant it all five, you get, you get an apple, you get a red delicious, that's your clone. You eat it and you take the five seeds and you plant them. Well, you're going to get five different apples. None of them are going to have a name yet. They'll be different than every apple that's ever been grown on earth. Completely unique. Now you might taste four of them and be like, these are terrible. And one of them, one of those apple trees might produce an apple that you like. So what you do is graft that apple. Mm-hmm. And over time, you just graft and graft and graft, and you can produce a whole orchard out of those grafts, and they'll all be genetic clones. And that's how our apple industry works today, right? So, um, and this is true of a lot of other fruits, by the way. So it's weird to me because most people are um, innately um, averse to eating cloned animals. So if I said, hey, I'm, I'm serving cloned sheep tenderloin tonight. Yeah, totally. You're probably going to be like, I'm not down with that. <laughs> As you eat, you know, the cloned apple. It's a weird thing that we do. But anyway, uh, back to the point. Um, th- some scientists looked at this. What happens if you eat a red delicious apple a day? Does it keep the doctor away? Turns out that actually it has negative health impacts. <laughs> so, so in Joe's book, for instance, she looks at like, well, which apple varieties have the worst impacts? Which ones are the best? And if we're going to pick a supermarket apple, how do we pick the best one? So there has been some great work done on that. Um, and that's some interesting stuff because as you trace the origins of food back, you start to realize that you've been living in, I, I, I call it artifact land. And the reason I call it that is because we have this word art um, and artifact and artificial, and they all use that same root word. And what it means is something that's an artifact bears the marking or shape of human will upon it. So um, my favorite metaphor is that if you were to be walking in the desert southwest and the, the, the ground around you is covered in stones, a lot of them are going to be made of flint. And flint is this material that our ancestors used to produce cutting edges, right? Like arrowheads. So you're walking through the desert and you look down and you see an, an old arrowhead that's been left on the ground from hunter and gatherer, hunting and gathering people from the past. You pick up that arrowhead and you pick up also a piece of flint, just a stone. Now they are made of the exact same material and they have the same chemical composition. They say they have the same crystalline composition. But one is a natural thing. It's a stone. And the other is artificial because it bears the mark of human will upon it. It's not a judgment like that's artificial. That's bad. It just means that humans have shaped that natural thing. So it's no longer natural. So, you know, sometimes people will say to you, they'll go, um, well, technically everything comes from nature, Daniel, even nuclear (laughs) weapons. So technically everything's natural. It's like, no, technically that's artificial because it bears the mark of human will upon it. Yeah. 
My okay, husband's so, a chemical engineer, and that's his argument all the all time. All right, sorry, I'm giving you the counter argument. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, that, that's great. Perfect. This is perfect. So um, I'll tell people, hey, you live in artifact land. And what I mean is when you step out of your Manhattan townhouse, out onto the front porch, and you look around, there is almost nothing that you can find that's natural. You could be like, well, that ginkgo tree over there. It's like, well, that ginkgo tree is the product of horticulture. It's not a natural varietal. That dog over there, it's like, sorry, that's a gray wolf that's been mutated into a dog. <laughs> uh, you know, the grass that's here, mm, sorry, that grass was imported from Europe. Like nothing that we see. Right. You could be like, the clouds. I'm like, those aren't clouds. Those are contrails. <laughs> you know what I mean? Very, very little. So most of us, if you think about it, very few people in our American culture have actually really experienced anything natural. Yeah. Very, very little. Well, well, we used to go to camp every fall. It's like, dude, they changed the shape of that lake three centuries ago. Mm. None of that, that forest is all eighth growth, <laughs> like nothing there, you know what I mean? So we've been living in kind of an artificial reality and we've, we've cultivated it, we've bred it. We, you know, going back, like the genetic modification technologies, like CRISPR technologies that we're using today, you know, we didn't just stumble onto that last week. We've been trying that for a long time. A lot of people don't realize that the wheat varieties that we, that whether we're talking organic or we're talking commercial, almost all of the wheat today was developed through blasting wheat seed with gamma radiation to see if we could mutate it. Because early on, when we started to develop nuclear technology, we realized real quickly that gamma radiation caused mutations in cells. So they thought, hey, we've been doing these long, slow breeding programs with plants for a long time. What if we just hit it with gamma radiation? Will that mutate it? Well, it does. And eventually the dwarf wheats we use today came out of those gamma radiation experiments. And so people think like, wheat, you know, you buy something wheat, a natural food. It's like, yeah, it mutated with radiation, but I guess it's natural, you know? So that's the world we're living in today. Uh, and I don't say all that to be negative, but more to say like, it's like the matrix. And it's like, hey, red pill or blue pill, like wake up. Like this is, this is an incredible what I love about earth is it's outside of um, the human beings don't have the ability to create this complexity. Like we're like, look at our iPhones, so powerful. It's like, yeah, look out at the, at the night sky, dude. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's so beyond us. And we've gotten, the problem with artificial land is that, uh, you know, kids are growing up today thinking that human beings are the, are the uh, pinnacle of nature's um, progression, that we are, that the human mind is the most complex thing in the universe. That's a lot of hubris right there. Very dangerous, but ultimately it's nihilistic and really sad. And one of the powerful things about reconnecting with nature is you start to realize how small you are in the scheme of that and that you're a product of nature and that um, none of your mental machinations can really overcome or even change it. And um, there's something comforting in that. And I think it's, it's why... It's why atheists on their deathbed tend not to be atheists anymore. You know, it's like we've been despiritualized through the process of trying to alter nature, and uh, and the outcome is mental uh, instability because 
we, <laughs> the thing that indigenous and hunter gatherer peoples have always had is they're able to go out of the landscape and be like, whoa, I didn't do this. This is awesome. <laughs> you know, right, right. and we're really lacking that because we everywhere we go, we're like, we did this. We're it awesome. Goes back, it goes back to that God ego complex again versus seeing God trying to be God, right? Or trying to instead of trying to feel God or experience God, trying to be in a sense. And I'm not speaking religious either. Um, I, I I think it's so interesting because with everything, this also kind of goes full circle when you talk metropolitan and vibrations of city, we've been talking about this palpable anxiety that people are feeling in this timestamp um, with pandemic again. And, and I believe nature to just be so parasympathetic, um, you know, yeah. versus this yeah. sympathetic fight or flight, epinephrine, amygdala, lizard brain reaction space that a lot of people are in. Um, can you guide us on a couple ways? So, so you know, I want to shift from those that are even in their city space. How can they connect and tap in? What are some, uh, you know, maybe two or three ways that they can reintegrate with nature? Yeah. Would you allow me to just touch on what you just said first and then I'll come to that? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. I want to just talk about the lizard brain for a second <laughs> um, because this is powerful stuff we're talking about. The, yeah. uh, the ability for this to change people's lives is really powerful. Um, I, I do agree that this is a really, we're all in this like being pushed towards the sympathetic nervous system state um, and that parasympathetic nervous system responses are um, in high demand. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and most people don't know how to access them. And I think that we can already see it in, we see it in our subculture, in our underground subculture, where the technologies for activating your parasympathetic nervous system are um, popular, meditation, yoga, sure. sauna, like whatever it is. But the public at large is lacking that. And that makes them quite dangerous in a sense um, because they are bumping around um, in, with tunnel vision. However, I just want to touch on this one piece. I'm really uh, big into training. I do a lot of um training. Uh, I don't know how to, I don't want to go too deep into that, but kind of on the martial arts sort of side, I'll say it like that. And um, developed the reptilian brain much more than, uh, because most people's reptilian brain is not well developed and that makes them very afraid because they don't have survival skills. And so because they don't, the, I think there are complexes almost more dangerous than a person who really knows how to uh, survive in their environment. So when you're when the reptilian part of your brain is well developed, you have like a super good root because it's really the root. That's your brainstem. Mm -hmm. So if your brainstem, if you don't have basic like I know how to survive outside, then outside becomes a hostile place. And if outside's a hostile place, you'll suppress nature anywhere you can because you're worried it will kill you. So you watch any of the survival shows on TV and it's always the same idea that nature is this dangerous force always looking to destroy you and you must suppress it and overcome it. Whereas when the arc complex of your brain is developed properly through nature integration, you don't feel that way. You just know that nature is actually um, a comforting place where you can go to for um, food, you can go to for medicine, you, you know what I mean? So I, I do think that, uh, that it would be good for people to learn some of those things so that they're less fearful um, because I think an untrained R complex is a dangerous thing. Okay. Anyway, uh, side note, <laughs> most of us do need to really work that parasympathetic yeah. side. Um, okay. So I'll, on that note, um, imagine that you've been relocated to a new town. And when you get to that town, you're standing out on the street and people are walking by and driving by and you know no one, no one. 
You don't know where any of the stores are. You don't know where uh, the town office is. You know, you got all those things you got to do in a new town. You got to get a post office box and you got to figure out a bank and you got to figure out where all the supplies you buy are going to come from. And you got to make new friends and you're looking out and you're all alone. You're alone and it's a little overwhelming versus you're in the town where you grew up and you're in your neighborhood and you look out, there's your mom and your dad. And hey, you've known those people since you were kids and you know where every store is and every bank is and you know where all the resources are and you know the, the cutty little swimming spots and you know where there's some blueberries. And you know, you're, this is where you grew up, you're at home, right? If you think about the two states and the way that they would make you feel and then you extrapolate that out to the planet itself, if you've grown up in such a way that you don't know anything about the natural world and when you go into nature, you don't recognize anyone. And what I mean is you look at the forest and all you see is this huge wall of green. You're not seeing individual species in the same way that when I look out at a, if I'm at a concert and I look out at a crowd, if I don't know anybody, I see a wall of faces. It's the wall of humanity. That's different than you're at a family gathering and you look out and you go, I know every single person here and all their backstory and they know me. So how does this relate? When I go out into nature, I'm, um, I have a lot to learn. So I want to be clear here. But where I live, I know a good deal of species. So if I go out and I look at that, what would be a wall of green to somebody who maybe hasn't left Manhattan Island in a while and they're suddenly here. And I look out at that forest or we take a walk together while we're walking through and they're just seeing a blur of green go by, I'm going paper birch, gold birch, gray birch, red maple, red oak. You know, I'm seeing all these species that I know. Not only do I know them, but I get food from them. Like I tap those birches in the springtime to make birch syrup. And I tap those maples to make all the sugar in my house. You know, when I see a deer, I don't have, I hear a noise in the woods. I'm not like, oh my God, it's a monster. People really are like <laughs> I mean, it sounds funny, but you take somebody from the city and put them out Early. in the woods at night. It's pretty scary to people because they don't know what mammals actually live on their own landscape. There was a study done recently where they were asking children in the city to name animals. And what the kids mostly named were African savanna animals. This was in New York. Wow. Know the species where they live. They know zebras and lions and elephants. And that's crazy, but we can all understand it because we're all like that too. Mm -hmm. So what was interesting about it was that they, when asked about the species that live where they live, they mostly had negative ideas about them. Raccoons, they're always in the garbage. They're dirty. You know what I mean? Like they don't know. And when they do know, they have negative um, concepts about them. So my point, when you start to engage the natural environment, one species at a time, what happens is you look out at the landscape and you see a hundred friends of yours. Dandelions are my friend. Mm -hmm. Why are they my friend? I've made parts of my body out of them. They, they nourish me, but also give me medicine. They also give me hope because they're everywhere I go and I know I can always fall back on them. And that's one species, but I could name 50 more that I know. And so that puts me in that parasympathetic state because I'm at home. When I'm in the woods, I'm in my hometown, so to speak, metaphorically. I'm amongst friends. But if you don't develop your recognition of nature, when you're in the natural world or you just are in your apartment in the city, you know that just on the outskirts of your city is this massive unknown, threatening unknown. All you hear are those survival stories. 
And so you end up having a hostile relationship with the natural world. So talk about a sympathetic nervous system response. Right. Anytime the idea of getting out of the city comes up, it's like, mm, yeah, I'm going to need all this equipment and I'm going to need all the. I used to joke all the time that the, the average backpacker looks to your eye more like an astronaut than a hunter-gatherer. <laughs> so if you think about that, I actually did a meme one time where I put all three next to each other, right? So you got the backpacker. It's like the big boots, the gaiters over the boots, the Gore-Tex pants, the Gore-Tex jacket, the hiking poles, the huge pack, all this stuff on. And then you look at like a hunter-gatherer in like a loincloth with a bow and an arrow. And then you look at the astronaut. It's like, whoa, we're more... <laughs> wh why is that interesting? Because it means that we're approaching our own planet like as if we're from somewhere else. Like it's not our home. <laughs> like we're here visiting it. We go into nature like extraterrestrial explorers visiting <laughs> a hostile world. This is deep stuff. I mean, yeah, to, yeah. to me, it's so shocking because, uh, and I'm not saying I'm never guilty of that. Uh, right. And part of being a human is that we are a species dependent on tools, but, but uh, we've gotten to the point where we think nature's hostile to us. And I think that's, a, that's one of the sources of so much discontent and, uh, you know, um, adrenalized states today and fear-based states. So interesting. There's a Portlandia skit that you're making me think of where like this, the couple is <laughs> packing all their gear to like get into nature. And by <laughs> the time they get there, they have like, you know, two minutes and they turn around because they get, yeah, right. you know, right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love when they go, I love when they go to that, like uh, outdoor movie or something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, reminds, it reminds me of my mom, actually, she lives in Connecticut in the woods, but she always has to have the newest like hiking poles and gear and all this stuff. I'm like, okay. Yeah. And that, and you know, and you know how that is. And we're all, I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. But sometimes what we do is we confuse the experience with the equipment. And we'll, we'll buy the equipment. I know people that think they're outdoorsy because they have a bunch of equipment <laughs> and they never go, you know? And so <laughs> there's a balance to be had there. And obviously we, we, especially because we're more like the dog than we are like the wolf. So, you know, I was just talking to my wife about this yesterday. It's fascinating how when you go out into nature, you, animals never have anything. They're just naked, all of them. Like they don't have anything. When we go into nature, we all have like 25 pounds of stuff, even if that's just our clothes and boots. Mm -hmm. Now, again, like that's partially because we're a type of species that developed alongside tools, but um, we've become so heavily reliant on it that it becomes quite cumbersome. Like so I was saying to her, I was like, baby, we need to like go on vacation to a remote island where I can just take everything off for like a week. I don't want to like put anything in my pockets. I don't even want to have pockets. Yeah. <laughs> Just like be on the beach with no stuff because man, it gets overwhelming. So um, yeah, we're domesticated is what I'm trying to say. Domestication means of the house. So, you know, you don't have to go back that far in history, given that we're a 300,000 year old species. You don't have to go back more than 10,000 years before there is no house to be of, right? So the dog also is not really equipped for the wild. Neither is the garden lettuce. Uh, you know, that's why it needs fences and that's why it needs pesticides and herbicides and, you know, weeding and all that stuff. So we're kind of similar to that. But I like this idea of not, I don't think you, me, or any of the people listening need to do some extreme back to nature thing. In fact, I think that's not a real sustainable approach. I think we need to take a step in that direction and trust the next generation to build on that. So, um, 
you know, it's kind of like if I'm, if I'm driving towards Mexico, but I'm trying to get to Canada, it's like, if I don't, you know, I have to turn around. There's no, there's no, like if I slow way down, that's not going to get me to where I'm going. <laughs> I'm still going in the wrong direction. Right. So I think a lot of times what people do is like, well, I'm going to cut down on f- my fat intake and I'm, I'm going to watch a little less Netflix. It's like, no, you're still, you're just slowing down your approach to the wrong place. You, you want to do some fundamental 180s and some of those have to do with how we relate to, you know, the nature around us. And so beyond kind of getting out in that vastness of nature and starting to identify some species and and kind of learning them to be your friends, what about maybe from a nutrient perspective or a food perspective? Um, You know, we don't want people going out and picking medicinal mushrooms without (laughs) (laughs) experience and without a guide, but what would be a way to kind of rewild your food, I guess? Well, yeah, so it kind of starts at that you know, it's going to start at the supermarket really for a lot of people. And it's just about making sort of slightly more informed choices. So like I said, you know, that might be for some people that might be instead of buying the romaine or the the iceberg lettuce this week, we'll buy the romaine. It's like one step in the right direction. And then, you know, once I'm accustomed to the fact that that's a got more flavor, maybe I go for like a red leaf lettuce or a, you know, an endive, like, oh, heaven forbid, and start to move towards things that have more flavor right? Maybe instead of the sweet yellow onion, I'm going to get a more pungent onion. So we can do that right in the supermarket. Um, Hey, I got an option in the frozen food section between a wild blueberry and a cultivated blueberry. Like maybe I'll try the wild one. Um, Hey, there's a grass fed animal that's more like um, a wild animal than um, a grain finished animal. So I'll go with that. So we can make those decisions right at the supermarket level. And then obviously we can kind of move up that, you know, um, move on that trajectory a little bit and do the farmer's market thing where we start to really get to produce that has more story to it. Cause that's a really big part too. And actually harkens back to another Portlandia skit. I'm sure you've seen where they order chicken in the restaurant. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, because a, a big part of this too, and it, going back to our sympathetic parasympathetic thing, the effect of eating food that has a story is tremendous. And you know that because people who don't even really care about that will spend more in a restaurant for something with a story. There's a reason they send a sommelier to your table when you order a good wine, Mm -hmm. because, hey, if I'm going to spend 150 bucks on this bottle of wine, I want a story, (laughs) not just, Mm -hmm. you know, most people don't have enough of a discerning palate. They need the story. Um, When I eat meat, you know, I I know the story of it because I killed that animal. Mm -hmm. I, I was there at the last moments of that animal's life. You know, that animal was born and was on a crash course trajectory with me. And we encountered one another. And I have a story about it. And very often when I eat it, like I can look up on the mantle and the animal's skull is right there. It's like, I have the story, right? The nice thing about going to the farmer's market versus the supermarket is you're getting closer to the story. So you got somebody who can tell you about, hey, this is when I got these seeds. Here's how I got them. Here's what this thing looks like in the ground. Like, here's the backstory of it. Here's when we harvested it. Um, And then I think, you know, as we go further on that, it's like, it's like maybe it's growing some herbs on your windowsill to basically be a nutritional supplement, right? To your diet, an antioxidant supplement to your diet, a medicinal supplement. Maybe it's starting to garden a little bit, or maybe it's taking some plant walks. And so you can kind of like very slowly make these transitions, you know. I'm a believer in nutritional supplements, but not obviously at the GNC level. But, you know, I really think that that's another area that we can look at is like fortifying our nutrition a little bit too because of the nutritional bankruptcy. Again, I I think it needs to be from 
things that are sourced from food. Um, cause very often, you know, it's like, wow, yeah, you're taking 10,000, whatever's of, you know, vitamin D2, but it's not even like <laughs> active and it's, you know, it comes with all these excipients. So I think it's important that, you know, we're, we're choosing quality stuff. So I think that's another way as well. And then, um, I'll add one more piece, which is that wild foods require a lot of work and processing, you know, proce- processed foods now in negative term, but it, it used to be everybody had to process their food because very little comes out of nature ready to eat. You know, some fruits do and such, but like I harvest wild rice, talk about some processing, you know, I mean, to get wild rice from the plant onto my plate takes a tremendous amount of processing. You really start to appreciate what, you know, buying a bag of white rice for 99 cents because you're like, who did all this work? (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, So there was a time in history where processed food was a kind of a cool idea because you were used to doing all that labor. Um, But anyway, I think in the, you know, it makes it very difficult for a lot of wild foods to reach market, but there are some. So uh, like every Brazil nut that you eat is a wild food. Blueberries, we talked about before, they, they make it there uh, very frequently. Asparagus is like an almost wild food. And you'll note you only see it, you know, unless it's being imported from somewhere, you only see it once a year for a very short window of time. Uh, sea vegetables are very often wild. And if they're not, the type of aquaculture they're doing is so close to wild, it almost doesn't matter. Uh, similar like with oysters and mussels and things like that. So we can also start, you know, line caught um, wild fish is an option. So there are wild foods that we can bring into our diet as well. And so that's another approach that, that folks might want to take too. Love it. I want to ask you, you touched on something earlier about anti-nutrients and plant toxicity. And um, Becky and I have addressed this in past episodes. We've also had carnivores on sharing their perspective. I, I want to open to it where you, not in your terms, but you basically were saying that humans are now living in a dirtier environment, you know, higher oxidative stress, higher toxicity. Uh, where do you sit on the idea of plant toxins and, you know, the hormetic effects and, and what antioxidants do and, and that variance again with wild having higher density and how, how nature may be providing that or what's the role of that in your perspective? Yeah. Well, anti-nutrients are really interesting um, because they're common and, you know, one of the things that's cool, you brought up the Weston Price folks earlier, that book, Nutritional uh, what's it? Nutrition and physical degeneration was kind of what led me from veganism to beginning um, to Same. transition over. Yeah, yeah. powerful, right? I I'll really I always tell people like you don't need to read it; just look at the pictures. Well, it's that <laughs> it's rever- like a- and it's that reverence too of that snout to tail connection. I think for yeah. those that did it for emotional or spiritual reasons, they can make harmony with that. Of like, oh, we're gonna have this reverence. We're gonna respect yeah. the entire being, and that's yeah. also more nutrient dense. Yeah. And that might be a type of nutrition too on a spiritual level. Um, Yeah. So anti-nutrients, you know, grains are a good example of this. There's this kind of popular idea now we shouldn't eat any grains, but if you look through time, you see that people do eat grains. They just didn't subsist exclusively on grains. Uh, So for instance, the Anishinaabe of the Great Lakes region of North America, you know, um, wild rice is a very important food for them. Wild rice is a grain. Uh, they did very well on that grain. That's a wild grain. That's different than we start farming it and we start, you know, like slowly over time um, changing its genetics and making it express more gluten and all the kind of problems that we have with a lot of the grains today. But, uh, but grains are a great example of, you know, a food that contains anti-nutrients. And so I'm sure you guys know, it's like one of those things, like if we're going to eat wild rice here, we soak that wild rice for eight hours or so before we cook it um, to remove those. Now that's a, just a, a, 
traditional understanding. And there's a lot of things like that. So with wild foods, it get, you know, there's a lot of things that are, that we eat that are toxic. If we don't cook them, they're toxic. If we don't leach them, um, a great example would be acorns. I love acorns because the word corn does not refer to maize traditionally. Now it does. So when we say corn, we think of the plant maize, um, but, you know, traditionally corn is a European word that's just generic way to refer to a grain. So when you think of the word acorn, that's the fruit of oak trees. And incidentally, acorns are the only fruit that I know of that aren't named after the tree or vice versa. So if you think about any tree, you'd be like apples. They come from an apple tree. Pecans, they come from a pecan tree. Yeah. Right? On and on and on and on. Then you get to oaks, you're like acorn. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> strange. It's like the only thing like that. And Acorns have this, they play a very significant role in human history because they have been the subsistence food for people in much of the world throughout time before agriculture. Um, acorns, why I like the name is because corn means grain. And when you put A in front of something, it means like not, right? So acorns are like not a grain, but they're kind of like one in that they're carbohydrate rich, but they're also lipid rich. They fill the same role as a grain in the diet, uh, but the acorn, unlike so many nuts, you can't just crack it open and eat it. In fact, I leach my acorns in water for about 10 days. And I, I don't just put them in water. I have to change the water three, four times a day. Oh, wow. So what I do is I, I harvest acorns. We dry them. We shell them, usually over like watching a movie or something. We shell them on the couch and then we uh, grind them. And then we put them in a bowl of water and we, we put about twice as much water in. And then as the acorn settles, I pour that water off and fill it again. And I just keep decanting it for 10 days. Well, I need to do that to remove the anti-nutrients. If you try to eat one acorn, your mouth will pucker up so completely with astringent compounds that, uh, you know, you the tannins, you just can't eat it. It's not a food until you do that leaching process. That's an extreme example, but yeah. our ancestors had understood that about many things in their environment. I can't tell this story well, but my, my friend, Arthur Haynes, who if you haven't had him on your show, would be a fantastic person to talk to. And he's my foraging mentor. And he tells this story, I believe out of Australia. I'm just going to give you the broad brush strokes of it because it's instructive, but um, about a, a traditional Aboriginal food that was always eaten with a oyster type bivalve shell as the spoon. And the Europeans that had come there were told to do this and they thought, yeah, whatever, we're going to just grind that seed and make it into little cakes and we're going to you know, kind of pan fry them and we'll eat it like that. Well, they all ended up getting sick from that. And it turns out that the shell had something in it that deactivated one of those anti-nutrients. You with me? And this yeah. was understood by the Aboriginal peoples and disregarded by the Europeans. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of times this idea that, you know, because the way that raw food vegans want it to be is that they want to believe that there is this sort of Garden of Eden world where everything was just edible and you just walked through picking stuff and it was all ready to eat. And it's like, you grew up in the city. Because let me tell you something, <laughs> it's not like that. Right. Uh, everything kind of, almost everything resists you eating it to some degree. Mm -hmm. So um, processing was really important. Uh, but we get into some complex stuff and I'd be curious your opinion on this. That's something I think about a lot. Like if somebody's, if somebody's just goes into the supermarket, right? Are they better off buying white flour or whole wheat flour? Because like, let's say they're going to buy a loaf of bread and it's really easy to think, man, I should get the, um, the whole wheat versus the white bread because it's more nutrient dense. 
But the problem is the brown part of the flour of the wheat is the part that contains the anti-nutrients. Yeah. Right. So if that hasn't been leached or sprouted or, or deactivated in some way, then you're actually getting a super concentrated dose of anti-nutrients. But if you ate the white bread, you wouldn't get any of that. Now you get almost no nutrition and a lot of calories and that's a whole other set of problems, but yeah. at least you're not getting hit with a heavy dose of anti-nutrients. So I think, I don't know, like, I don't know if you have an answer to that. It's one of those things I look at and I go like, oh, it's complicated. This is nuanced stuff and it takes kind of some education for people to understand because they've been taught everything is ready to go out of the package. Yeah. Well, and, and we are so anti-flour because of synthetic enrichment and folic acid versus, you know, nature made folate. Right, right, There's right. so many layers, man. <laughs> Isn't it neat? Because you start to look like, like one, one instructive thing for people is like, look at what's being added to your food. Right. Because that tells you what's not in our food. Yeah. So I can tell you they put iodine and salt because it's not, you're not getting it. Right. They're putting vitamin D in the milk because you're not getting it. They're putting all the B vitamins in your wheat because you're not getting it. So those, those are the things that um, our modern diet is missing. And I find all that really amusing and interesting that, that we have fortified our diets and um, that ha it hasn't occurred to most people like, hey, that means our diet lacks nutrients. Most definitely. Essential for life. <laughs> Yes. And especially if it has to advertise for it, then, you know, even worse. Yeah, <laughs> Fortified exactly. with. Oh, man. Yeah, um, exactly. Kind of just to round things out and, and then we'll, of course, share with our listeners where they can find more about you. This has been such a fun conversation. Um, I want to connect the dots a little bit. So I, I was beaming when you were talking about um, our friends in the forest. So Becky and her husband and my husband and I with my daughter were out in the Pacific Northwest just last fall for my, my book tour. And it was like that. I was like, there's Devil's Club and there's Elder and there's, there's mm -hmm. Nettle. And um, we pulled Oregon grape root and I made her chew on getting the, the, the alkaloid, you know, berberine compounds. And, um, you know, we spit for a while and I was like, this is how people would prevent uh, <laughs> born illness if they were to eat something that was off, if, you know, meat wise and whatever. And so we had a really great adventure. And it's funny when I moved to Houston, I was, I had a, a Houston survival guide and I was really scared. Um, now we've relocated to Austin to at least find some synergy, but there was this path in, in the middle of like downtown Houston, um, well, urban neighborhood and reishi mushroom would grow there. And I always thought it was so interesting, um, because super toxic environment, right? Like a lot of pollution, a lot of cars, um, I, just kind of connecting this dots of like the symbiosis of everything and how nature provides. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, you know, dandelion and tap group tap roots growing in particular areas of soil in need or like, you know, it, it, do you think that there's this, this network of nature that understands where there are these holes? And if we don't continue to interfere, there's, there's hope that, that there's going to be this healing revolution, I suppose. <laughs> I love this question. There's two, I kind of have two perspectives. A little esoteric, man, but you know. <laughs> it's not really. I don't think it is. I, uh, cause this would be the normal perspective all through human history until the enlightenment and, um, the enlightenment and the sort of scientific revolution, while it's led to incredible technological breakthroughs has led to terrible nihilism and a sense of desolation and isolation. So it's not like it's all good, right? So giving up that idea that there's a spiritual component to the world has not been good for us psychologically. It's been good for us economically, but you know, most of us are now looking for meaning in a world that we're being told has no meaning. And so, I, but I often point out we have two eyes uh, and two lobes of the brain 
that allow us to have depth perception. So if I close one eye, I don't have any depth perception. If I look at things from only one perspective, it's a pretty one-sided view. I need both eyes open. That allows me to see depth, right? And because the right and left brain kind of handle opposite uh, ways of seeing the world, it's like two operating systems. Like it's almost like your right brain is Mac and your left brain is is you know PC or whatever. You know what I mean? So I think it's important to ha- I kind of have both perspectives. So um, one perspective says, well, you know, it's like um, if there's a niche available, something will occupy it, mm-hmm. and I don't need to go to like you know. Uh, if somebody fills a niche in the business world that was left open, that doesn't mean they necessarily had some big picture perspective and they said, hey, look, over there's a niche that needs filling. I'm going to jump in over there. Sometimes you just bumble your way into it. Most of the time you do. And then when you tell the story later for posterity, you act like you knew. Um, <laughs> but then another part of me does see the world in that way and believes that you know, I guess in the biggest picture that you could, you know, there's that sort of Gaia hypothesis of the earth is like a living thing and that there's a sort of intelligence in nature that supersedes any one individual species and that all of us are working together as part of a synergy um, and that it's a, got self-correcting mechanisms. Uh, I'm comfortable. I don't think it's cognitive dissonance to hold both of those views at the same time. In the same way that I don't think it's cognitive dissonance for me to look out of both of my eyes at the same time. Mm-hmm. Both eyes give me a slightly different perspective because they're not right on top of each other. So uh, I have both views, but I think it is interesting. I've always kind of laughed at the guy who's got anger problems and maybe a bit of an alcohol problem. And he's obsessed with a perfect lawn and he's out there, wait, he's out there with a dirty liver and, and blocked up kidneys battling the dandelions in his yeah. yard have European grasses there. And he doesn't realize that he's mowing down his medicine and it just keeps showing up. And it's like, bro, eat it. <laughs> make a tea out of it it's your remedy uh so you know i find it funny watching us wage war on remedies uh here in the northeast we're dealing with a incredible and so finally kind of getting out there but for a long time silent epidemic of lyme disease you know because we have this mm. proliferation of these ticks that are vectors for that and at the same time that this disease has risen to prominence we've been overwhelmed in many cases with um, Japanese knotweed, which is a, a plant that was brought over here because of its rapid growth. They'd use it to hide latrines because it grew up fast and you could hide the sort of like, you know, human waste areas or whatever. Well, now it's out on our landscape. Turns out that the root of that, the rhizome, is one of the most effective herbal treatments in Lyme disease. So as this thing is taking over our landscape, it's also the medicine we need the most right now. Uh, and there are countless instances of that. Um, I have waded into this territory. You get a lot of angry biologists who don't like that kind of thinking. They're like, we need to get rid of these invasive plants. And you got the other people who are like, no, man, these plants are cosmopolitan and a lot of them offer us the medicines we need right now. Uh, I see both perspectives, but if I had to pick, like if you were like, hey, man, get on this side or that side, I'm getting on the side of like nature is a conscious thing and it it self-directs its own healing. Uh, I take... Uh, I take refuge in that idea ultimately, um, but I don't want people to get the impression I'm anti-scientific or anything. I just think they're two operating systems and one of them has led to a a lot of um, divorcement from the things that make us healthy. And that'd be like the scientific paradigm. Um, And uh, I think a a nature-based paradigm led us into, you know, we had a lot of, we, it's dangerous territory too, because that's what led to like some of the really oppressive religious regimes in the past and oppression of a lot of different groups, you know, and stuff like that. But I think as we merge these two ideas, 
we will eventually understand from a scientific perspective how some of that works. Like there might be a scientific reason that those things happen. Right. We don't know what it is yet. Uh, so I kind of lean toward that. Um, I, I trust nature way more than I trust anything that human beings create. 100%. <laughs> We're with you. <laughs> Uh, this has been such a cool, fun conversation. Let's wrap up with, um, I want to hear your 24-hour recall. So we do this with all of our guests, but I have a feeling yours is going to be very interesting. What this is, is um, what you ate yesterday from the time that you woke up to the time that you went to bed. Enlighten us on kind of a, a typical day. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> also a memory exercise. Yes. Yeah. I make a smoothie in the morning. Uh, so my smoothie contains, you know, regular, like super foodie type ingredients and also contains wild ingredients. So the base of that smoothie was chaga, which I harvest here in the mountains in the winter. Um, so that's a medicinal mushroom. Um, my wife is kind enough to boil that for me a couple times a week. We have a lot of little trades. One of the things she does for me is that. So she makes me this tea and, uh, she's not a smoothie person, but I use that tea as the base of my smoothies you know, wild blueberries go in there, maple syrup that I make from my trees here goes in there. Uh, some of the products I produce for my company, Search Rival, like colostrum that goes in there and bone broth powder and stuff like that. Uh, so I blend a smoothie. I'm a major chocolate addict. That's like one of the things I can't give up. I always like joke, like I believe in the spice trade, even if I'm going to try to get most of my food from nature. <laughs> so I need chocolate too. Uh, so that was a big part of it. Um, I don't remember lunch when I had but for dinner last night, deer, I shot a couple deer the other night. Um, I work uh, a farm nuisance permits. So I'm given these special permits that allow me to harvest a couple of deer a year off this farm at night in order to help preserve their crops. That's one of the interesting things vegans don't understand about the farms that they get their vegetables from is that there's hunting taking place to make sure their vegetables don't get eaten. Uh, so we had fresh deer, which was awesome because a lot of the, the meat that I harvest gets frozen. And so uh, last night I served deer and uh, vegetables that my wife grew actually uh, out back. So we had some peppers and things like that, um, some alliums and things. And so, uh, yeah, last night was centered around deer. And also um, my dog last night ate deer and uh, wild turkey uh, is what I fed her. So uh, we feed the dog <laughs> off wild foods nice. as well. Um, yeah, so that's kind of, and that's a fairly typical day. You know, my freezers are like, I, I tend to alternate because I harvest fish. I harvest white meats like turkey. Uh, I harvest red meats like bear and deer. So I kind of uh, build off of those. And then I, I try to incorporate as many of the wild foods I have around um, with the foods that we get from our farmer's market and stuff like that. Uh, and right now it's summertime. So all our veggies, you know, either something we forage or from the farmer's market, but come winter, you know, it's uh, not as easy. But, um, but yeah, yesterday was all about venison. Love it. And will you share with our listeners, I, we were looking at some of your video work. Um, tell them about the Wild, Fe Wild Fed video show and podcast and also where they can find more about you. Cool. Wild Fed's a show uh, that I make. It's a 30-minute TV show. Uh, in fact, um, hopefully you'll be seen on cable at some point soon. Awesome. And, um, and what Wild Fed is, is a journey through the seasons as uh, me and friends of mine hunt, fish, and forage. And then we usually bring that food to chefs who then turn it into meals either at their restaurant or sometimes they come to us. And uh, I wanted to make a adventure, a food adventure show that um, had a Trojan horse effect of it getting people inspired and excited to 
start to participate in the natural world. You know, we have a lot of conversation about saving the earth and most people like don't have any investment in any particular place anywhere. So it's kind of hard to save, uh, you know? So once you start harvesting from nature, it's like you start to want to take care of places. That's the Trojan horse effect. But that show is called Wild Fed. You can find us at wild-fed.com. Wild Fed's a podcast. It's all our social media as well. And the idea is, you know, it's kind of like a grass-fed cow. It's like being wild-fed. But then obviously there's a lot more to it too because we're fed in more ways than just food when we're in nature as well. But uh, the show's really cool. So in the first season, there's eight episodes um, and a lot happens. Wow, you know, we're harvesting plants. We're harvesting mushrooms. We're out on the ocean getting seaweeds. We're hunting. We're fishing. Uh, my wedding's there actually. Uh, my, when my wife and I got married, I wanted to do as much of the food as I could. So I went out on a lobster boat and harvested a hundred pounds of lobster to feed our guests. And, you know, so that's in the show and uh, my wedding's in there and, you know, all kind of, it tracks me through a year um, doing all the different things. And it's pretty cool because a lot of people walk away, they go, wow, I didn't ever think foraging would be that much of an adventure. I almost thought it'd be kind of more straightforward and boring, but a lot of the species I go after require that I hike into this place or take a canoe over here or, you know, so, you know, it's pretty neat to see what it looks like in a cranberry bog when you're, you know, which is kind of the equivalent of like one of those, uh, you know, birthday inflatable castles, you know, but it's, it's a peat moss <laughs> island that, that moves when you walk on it, you know? And so, so people start to see all these different landscapes that we go out in to get this food too. So again, that's at wild-fed.com. And obviously you'd find, you know, if you just look up wild fed, you'll find all our stuff. Yes. And then I want you to share your supplement website as well, but I want to share with uh, listeners as we were talking today, um, obviously Daniel's such a wealth of knowledge, but it's it's a way I really feel like the cinematography is fantastic, and I really feel like when you watch the episodes, um, it provides an integration opportunity for viewers to, like you said, many have probably never seen cranberries grow, you know? Um, maybe they've never even seen a whole cranberry. They've only seen the can or the way that the ant puts it out in the <laughs> And so it's this reintegration of, of passive experience um, as well as helping to inspire. And I think it provides some of that parasympathetic as well, because you get to see this cyclical Mm -hmm. outdoor time in a non-stressed, like you said, survival format. <laughs> yeah, it's not a survival people, show. <laughs> right, are used to seeing. I just think it's a really yeah. wonderful project. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, I'm really trying to strike the balance between education, entertainment, and art. Yeah. Um, you know, I think all of those are important. And I think modern television in particular lacks the education component. It yeah, tends well, to be yeah. entertainment. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, and yeah, and, and just what you mentioned before, part of what I love about this lifestyle is uh, I come from like a really broken family. And so we don't, I didn't grow up with traditions and um, this is like for me been a way to build all these traditions. And so every part of the year, there's something that Avani and I do, you know, we're right now in the, in striper fishing season where we haul our boat down to the ocean and we go in pursuit of this one particular fish and that's going to wind down pretty soon. And I'm going to step into the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. And, you know, I probably harvest 30 different things a year. And so there's always some new thing that we're looking forward to. And that means packing away the old equipment, getting out the new stuff, going to the new place that we haven't been to for a year, meeting that species face to face again. And it becomes these, just these really cool traditions. But anyway, uh, to your other point, Sir Thrival, S-U-R-T-H-R-I-V-A-L. It's like survive and thrive. Sir Thrival is my supplement company. I've been running that successfully now for 12 years. So Sometimes we're like, just feel so blessed. You know, I know a lot of small businesses, it's like, 
it's like that five-year mark. Anyway, we're 12 years in. Uh, we've been better than ever through the pandemic. And I think partially because when I built that company and why I named it Sir Thrival, the idea of, you know, was thriving through any circumstances. And I kind of saw things like what are happening now happening. It's just, I, it was, you don't have to be a prognosticator. It's kind of obvious where certain things are headed. So, so I, I was thinking, okay, where are people going to be at and what, are, what is their health going to be like? And what are some of the things that could radically transform their health from a supplement perspective to prepare them for the world of 10 years from now? It's going to be more polluted. There's going to be more pandemics. There's going to be, you know, people are going to get less sunlight. They're going to, you know, if they're not choosing actively to take up lifestyles like we're talking about, doesn't have to be this one, but things like it, right. then their health's going to suffer more and more and more. So I created a supplement line around that idea. A lot of the things that we produce are wild foods like our chaga extract or, you know, which is a immunomodulator or pine pollen, a wild pine pollen, which contains testosterone and can be used and replace, you know, bioidentical testosterone uh, pharmaceutical therapies. Uh, we do some things that aren't wild, like uh, colostrum, which I just think is one of these foods that people should really know about. Bovine colostrum is incredible for the immune system, three times more effective against flu than vaccines. Really cool stuff. Um, so we produce this line of supplements, um, and you can find all that at surthrival.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on the Naturally Nourished podcast. It's been such an awesome conversation and we hope to cross paths sometime in the future. <laughs> yeah, I'll be out in Austin next year uh, in the spring for Paleo Effects. So maybe I'll catch you guys then. And um, I just want to say thanks for, again, for sharing your platform. Thanks for introducing me to your audience. And I know I'm long-winded, so uh, thanks for giving me space to sort of un unload some of this stuff. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well. <laughs>